intention was to take the first four Sundays of 2021 and look at the first four Psalms. That worked, sort of, but between me being sick and then between having to cancel last week, we're on now the sixth week of 2021, and we're still in the Psalms. My plan next week is to begin a look at the book of 1 Peter. I wanted us to look at Psalms 1 through 4 first. We've been looking at these Psalms at the beginning of the new year, seeking godly wisdom and encouragement as we live in what I think we all would agree are chaotic and uncertain times. As we seek to live godly lives and steadfast lives in a world that is increasingly hostile toward God and toward his people. What we need to understand as we seek to live in that kind of a reality is that as we seek to live godly lives, as we seek to be steadfast in a world that is ungodly and not steadfast, Our focus does not need to be on the particular evils of the world. So easy easy is it for us as we try to view the world through Christian lenses and as we try to have a Christian worldview in the current situation, it is so easy for us to spend our time focusing on the news, focusing on the specific evils, and I'm not saying that we need to be ignorant of all of that, but the way to navigate that in a godly way is first and foremost to turn our eyes upward. Because only then are we in the proper frame of mind to look at the world around us in a godly way. My fear and my suspicion is that many, many Christians in the world today are more concerned about what happens in Washington and what happens downtown and what happens in certain movements among our culture today. We're more concerned about that than we are about our own personal walk with the Lord. If you were to walk into most churches today, you'll find that to be exactly the case, and you know it because that's what we talk about. You see? You'll also find that many of those Christians who spend their time that way are actually some of the most unstable people you might know because they're scared to death about where our culture is going. And I'm here to tell you this morning, we don't have to be afraid. I don't care who's in Washington. And if I can be so blunt, it actually doesn't even matter what flag flies over the White House in the Capitol building. As Christians, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be shaken. We don't have to be thrown off and into a tailspin wondering what in the world are we supposed to do because our anchor isn't holding on to the White House. Our anchor isn't holding on to the Capitol building. Our anchor isn't holding on to Western North Carolina. It's not anchored on anything in this world. Our hope, our anchor is God himself. We just sang that he's the Lord of life, right? (laughs) 
You might be the Lord of your little plot of land wherever you live, but he is the Lord of life itself. He's the Lord of heaven. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of man. So if we have put our hope in him, then what fear could possibly grip our lives? Right? So as we look into the Psalms, we learn that these are a great place for us to turn in times of encouragement, in times when we are spiritually weak and we are tempted to turn our focus only to the things around us. It is the Psalms that lift our focus above our circumstances, that lead us from despair to delight in the Lord. The Psalms deal honestly with the trials and sufferings of life. They do. When life stinks, the Psalms are willing to say so. But they also teach us the character of God. And they turn our hearts and our minds to Him. Because there we find true comfort and joy and strength and stability. No matter what's going on in the world around us. If you want to see great examples of that, look at the life of David. A couple weeks ago, last time we were together, we looked at Psalm 3, and we learned about unshakable assurance that belongs to all who are in Christ Jesus. We learned that though trouble is real, God is enough, and peace is possible, and victory is sure. You remember that from a couple weeks ago? And that was all demonstrated from the life of King David and his own testimony in Psalm 3 as he was fleeing his own palace. As he had just been the victim of a military coup led by his own son. Talk about a tough life, right? Well, today as we get into Psalm 4, we find a similar theme carrying on and continuing to develop. Psalm 4 also was written by David, and some even say that the circumstances were the same as Psalm 3, that he's running from Absalom, his son. We don't know that for sure, but it certainly seems to, to fit. But in either case, what David writes here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is divine instruction on finding godly peace in a troublesome world. And here in Psalm 4, David models for us the thinking and the character and the behavior of one who finds God's peace. Let's look at what David says in Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices. 
and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. If you look around carefully at our society today, you will notice that life is full of troubles. And most of you don't have to look very far, do you? But you'll also notice that very few people in our world are equipped and ready to handle them. Right? The world is filled with experts. We have experts on everything. Science, technology, finances, philosophy, economics, popular religion, politics, language, warfare, psychology, health, fitness, the arts, manual labor, and the list could go on. Experts in every field. And yet, when tragedy strikes, when crisis arises, when we are reminded of our own weakness and of our mortality and the brokenness of this world touches our lives, how do most people respond? Fear? Panic? Anxiety? Depression? Anger? Violence? And so on. That is natural when we are seeking security and satisfaction in things that cannot secure and satisfy. That's the world we live in today. And so what we need most in our day is not more expertise in the world. What we need is to set our minds and our hearts and our hopes on the one true and living God who is our life, who is our peace, who is our joy, who is our security. We will not find it anywhere else. And that is exactly where Psalm 4 turns our attention to the only true peace that there is to find. Godly peace or the peace that comes from God. David models this for us. And he demonstrates godly peace in the believer's life in four ways. He demonstrates godly peace for us, first of all, in his prayer. Second of all, in his conviction. Third, in his instruction. And then finally, in his own testimony. Notice, first of all, then in verse 1, that David demonstrates godly peace in his prayer. This is where we must always begin. When we are confronted with trouble, our first call must be to God in prayer. David says here, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. There's confidence in those words, right? Can you see it? Can you hear it? Answer me when I call. 
David isn't messing around. He isn't toying around with other things, with God as a last resort. Oh, I'll pray when, when everything else fails. That's not what's going on with David here. David knows he has no other hope but God alone. But he is confident that his hope in God alone is more than enough. That it is sufficient. And his confidence is not blind confidence. His confidence is based on two things, two critical areas. And, and we've already gotten a taste of it this morning as we have sung about the character of our God and the work of our God. David highlights, first of all, his confidence in God's character when he says, O oh God of my righteousness. David is claiming a righteousness for himself, a righteous standing before God, as all believers do. But he is not claiming to be the source of that righteousness. We are never the source of the righteousness we have. God alone is the source. And so he calls him the God of my righteousness. He is the God of righteousness. He is the righteous God. He is the standard, the perfect standard of perfect righteousness. And he is the giver of righteousness to his people. If we have any eternal hope, it is only from God. If we have any hope in our trials, it is only from God. And so if we would confide in only one person when trouble hits, it must only be God. We begin with prayer. And we pray confidently because of who God is. That word righteousness has to do with God's perfection, his perfect standard, his holiness, and his purity. So when David prays, we see that he has a clear understanding of the one he is addressing. And he is not bringing unrighteous requests to this righteous God. He is not bringing God down to his own level to use for his own gain as a genie in a bottle. He is not casual or irreverent about his prayer to the Lord as if he's just making small talk with a buddy. He is consumed by the holy and righteous character of his God. And he confesses his submission to that righteousness. And he prays with that on the forefront of his mind. And so he prays confidently because he knows he is taking a just cause to a righteous God. That tells us a little something about how he prayed. And it tells us a little something about who he prayed to. That God is righteous and just. And so worthy of our trust. The other aspect of God's character that we see here is his grace. David prays with confidence to the God of righteousness, knowing that he will be gracious to him and will hear his prayer. Whenever we think of the holiness and the righteousness of God, we are reminded of our own sinfulness, aren't we? Who would dare to enter the courts of the Lord? Who would dare to speak his requests to such a holy God when we are so very sinful? We are reminded of our desperate need of grace 
and mercy if we will have any sort of a hearing with this God, right? But we learn that he is not only the righteous and holy one, he is the gracious and merciful one. David knows he is sinful and that God is righteous. But he also knows that God is gracious toward his people and will hear their prayer. So David cries out in confidence, not because he thinks he's worthy of being heard, but because he knows the character of his God and he knows his God will listen. Because he knows who he is. But David's confidence is not just in God's character, it's also in God's work. He cries out to God in confidence because of what he does and specifically how he knows God has worked in his life in the past. That's what he says there. You have given me relief when I was in distress. He's looking back there. Lord, I have seen you work in the past. I have seen what you are capable of. Now there's an interesting play on words going on there. In what David says, that word distress has the idea of being pressed down or being pressed into a corner as if the walls are caving in around him and his world just got smaller and smaller. But that word relief has the idea of being enlarged. You know, some of our best times with God are when we're being pressed into the corner, aren't they? Some of our best times with God, when we draw near to Him and have the sweetest fellowship, is when we feel like our life is just falling apart. And we don't know what the next step is going to be. And we are forced to cry out in faith and utter dependence on Him. Hear me when I call. And our only hope is, God, you're righteous, and I know you've worked in the past. And I don't know how you're going to work this out now, but I'm looking to you. And here, in David's time of trouble, when he is cornered and the walls are caving in, he says God enlarged for him a way of escape. Who else can do that but a sovereign God, right? Against all hope, Against all odds, God made a way of sure escape for his child. David had experienced that in the past, and so he prays with confidence to the Lord that he will do it again. Lord, you are righteous and holy, and I am submitted to your will. You know my predicament, and and you are good, and so I cast my care, my burden on you, knowing that you will hear and answer my prayer. That is the earnest prayer of David and of every believer. We read about that in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. With these comforting words, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have perfectly sovereign and righteous and holy and merciful and gracious God who invites us to cast our cares on him in time of need. And he will listen. And so as with David, 
we demonstrate godly peace in troubling circumstances when we pray, turning our eyes and our confidence off of ourselves and placing it confidently on the Lord, our righteousness, our gracious God, as we seek his will and cast our burdens on him. Godly peace is displayed by godly, confident prayer. But then secondly, not only does David demonstrate godly peace in his prayer, but also in his conviction, his conviction. In verse 2, David turns his attention to other people. He starts speaking to those around him. He addresses them, and he begins to proclaim to them the conviction that drives his prayer in verse 1. So in verse 2, he expresses his conviction with a bold confrontation to those who stand against him and who stand against his God. He says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? Now, let's stop right there and remember for a moment that when David's talking about his honor, he's not necessarily talking about his own personal reputation alone. How long will you make me feel a little silly? That's not what he's talking about. In fact, back in Psalm 3, verse 3, we already learned that his glory is God himself. It's God's reputation here. It's God's honor that he is most concerned about. So how long will, will my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Vain words and lies. That's what characterizes those who just ran David out of town. That's what characterizes those who have turned against God and against his people. And David confronts them for their dishonor and for their delusion. David's authority was under attack, but his primary concern was the glory of God. And the sense of the wording here is, how long will you reject the holy God and deceive yourselves with false notions and ungodly behavior? How long will you suppress the truth and run your own way? How long will you reject God and exalt yourselves? That's what David's after here. And as he responds to his own suffering and his own trouble, he is grieved by the blindness and the hardness of heart of his attackers toward God. He knows they will not find peace. They will not find joy by running David out of town and by rejecting God and his authority. I see here a model for us. Right? This is the attitude that we ought to have toward our world today. It's a godly attitude. As we look at a world that is plummeting into foolishness and evil, we're not upset with the world because they make our lives uncomfortable. We're not upset because they've somehow offended us and, and we didn't get our way. No, we're grieved. Because when we look at the world around us, we see people who are deluded by error, who are fooled by evil, who are striving after peace and joy, and yet in all the wrong places. 
We live in a world that is desperately grasping for peace and seeking for it diligently in every place but the one place it is to be found, in the Lord's anointed. And who is the Lord's anointed? It's not David, it's Christ. You learned that from Psalm 2, didn't you? Our world, like David's world, is a world that loves vain words and seeks after lies. And as long as that is the case, as long as mankind continues to seek independence from the one true God and, and, and his designs and his commands, there will be no peace. And so we who know the Lord cry out with David in conviction and compassion to our generation. How long will you persist in this? Wake up and see the truth. But then in verse 3, David also expresses his conviction with a blessed consideration. Not just a bold confrontation, but a blessed consideration. He says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. The ungodly are forsaking the Lord and will be forsaken by the Lord. But the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, and he hears when we cry to him. There's a lot going on in David's life that he doesn't understand. There's a lot going on in your life that you don't understand, right? There's a lot that we see from day to day that we just don't have answers for. But from David, we learn that stability in the storms of life is not based on how we feel. It's not based on our ability to answer every question. Stability as God's people is not found by figuring out all the unknowns. Sometimes the answer to the question why is I really don't know. And that's the truth. And that doesn't mean that our lives have to be tossed about. Because that's not where our stability is found. Stability as God's people is found by answering the unknowns with what is known. And what do we know? What did David know? He says, the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Listen, Christian. Whatever hardships you have to navigate in your life, God Almighty has set you apart for himself. Visualize that. He has looked on you. He has reached down to you and picked you up from where you were and has set you down in his kingdom, in his family, and as we'll see in a moment, at his table. He has set you apart for himself. He's mine. She's mine. They are mine. That speaks of your election, and that speaks of your preservation. That what he has begun in you, he will complete all the way to the point of your glorification in his presence. While you were running after sin, 
he ran after you. And he saved you. And he gave you peace with God to make you holy and to give you a home with him forever. And every promise that belongs to his people belongs to you in Christ. So, Christian, in your hour of trial, plant your feet on the gospel. And remember that you belong to God. And what's more, David adds something else that we know. He says, the Lord hears when I call to him. The Lord hears when I call to him. Because we are chosen by God, because we are set apart unto God, we know we will be heard by God. He listens, cares, he hears the prayer. This is the conviction that drives David and frankly drives all believers to prayer in the midst of their trials. We might be facing fearful and frustrating times and we may not have the answer to every question, but we do not need to fear, nor do we need to give up our faith or our convictions, nor do we need to give in to temptation. Our peace and stability is not found in our circumstances or in our feelings or in our control or in our ability to answer every question. It is found in our righteous and gracious God who has saved us, who has made us his own, and who has given us eternal life. He is our heavenly Father who hears our prayer, who cares for our need, who holds our lives in his hands and who is working all things together for our eternal good and his eternal glory. And so again, as with David, so with us. We demonstrate godly peace in troubling circumstances when we cast our cares on him, when we follow his lead and his commands, and we take comfort in the fact that we belong to God and he hears our prayers. Let me just say one other thing before we move on. When we think about what it means that we belong to God, what did Jesus teach to those who leave behind even their own families in order to follow Christ? What did he say? There is no one who has left father or mother or brothers and sisters who will not receive a hundredfold mothers and brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. Because God has set his love on us and has made us his own and brought us into his family, we are now surrounded by fellowship, not just with God himself, which is the most important thing, but with one another as Christians. Listen, there is stability in the storms of life, in prayer, in fellowship with God, and in fellowship with his people. When your life gets difficult, don't run from the church, run to it. You need one another. We need you. And this is how we encourage one another to keep our hopes and our faith and our eyes on Christ. So far then, we have seen David demonstrate godly peace in his prayer, and his conviction. And now as we come to verse, verses 4 and 5, he demonstrates that godly peace in his instruction. 
here, it's as if he speaks directly to us as a teacher, as one who has been there. And now he has some words of wisdom directly to us about how we can pursue godly peace. And there are three key words that he gives us here to help us do that. Those words are tremble, meditate, and worship. First, tremble. We read in the first part of verse 4, be angry and do not sin. David, of course, is counseling himself in his own response to his difficult circumstances. But he is also counseling those who are with him, who are fleeing with him, on how they should respond. But he is, in a very real sense, counseling us today in how we respond in hard times and even to those who reject our God. That phrase, be angry, has the idea of trembling or shaking. And what David is describing here is not an anger that is out of control, but an anger that trembles before the Lord and before his righteousness. Remembering everything we've covered to this point will govern that anger. David is distinguishing between righteous anger and sinful anger. And his point here is that our response to trials should not be driven by selfish vengeance or vindication but by zeal for the holiness and glory of God. We know full well that selfish anger does nothing to accomplish godly peace in our lives, right? We know that when we give in to selfish anger, we only make things worse. But there is a time to be angry, a time to take a firm and forceful stand And that is when it is for godly and holy purposes, according to the character and glory of God. Godly anger is driven by godly fear. By a zeal for God's holiness and a hatred of sin. And that means that godly anger looks very different than selfish anger, doesn't it? Very different. In fact, godly anger often will only show itself by inward grief, driving us to prayer because we tremble before God and we leave vengeance in His hands. Perhaps this is where many go wrong today. We don't fear God and we don't hate sin. So when we get angry, our outrage is selfish and it's focused on the wrong things. We feel like we have to make a statement. Why? To vindicate ourselves, to assert our dominance. Right? Parents, you've done it to your kids. I have too. We've done it to others. Sometimes we've even done it to one another. There is a time to make a statement, but that statement must always be the result of much trembling before God in prayer and in holy grief over sin. That brings us to the next key word, meditate. In the second half of verse 4, we read, Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. The key to avoiding sin in our response to hardships often is silence, self-examination, quiet thinking. Those two phrases, ponder in your own hearts, 
and be silent. Are those not two lost arts in our generation today? I'm convinced that most people, including Christians, rarely experience silence and an opportunity to ponder in their own hearts. Many, I suspect, rarely even spend five minutes a day in silence and undistracted self-examination. In fact, I get the sense that most people are afraid of it. Our lives are so noisy, we're scared of the quiet, aren't we? Every free moment people get leads to the impulsive check of the smartphone, the thoughtless taps and swipes, and sometimes even the hasty and combative comments on social media. Have we done it enough times yet to figure out that it doesn't lead to peace? That it doesn't settle our minds before the Lord? In fact, it exacerbates our stress emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And it's as if David has just walked into the 21st century and he's looking at us and he's saying, go to bed. Get offline. Turn the TV off. And shut your mouth for just a little while. Think. Tremble before the Lord. Examine your own hearts. Pray. And he might even add taking. I mean, he is talking about being quiet on our own beds. See, we're not designed to run through life at top speed with no rest and no time to be quiet. We often have tricked ourselves into thinking it's possible to multitask. I can read my Bible and clean the house and attend this meeting at work on Zoom. David's practical instruction here is for those who would find peace, make it a priority to be still before the Lord, to examine your hearts according to his word, even if it has to be just at the end of the day when our heads hit the pillow and we lie in bed to sleep, we review our day, we're quiet, we pray, we examine our hearts in the light of God's word and God's character. It's a powerful, it is a necessary way to keep our minds and our hearts fixed on God, not on our circumstances and not on our feelings. You know that's part of the reason we have the Lord's Day. I know we don't necessarily confess that it's the Christian Sabbath, but there's a lot of similarities in its intention. That leads us to the third key word, worship. We read in verse 5, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. That phrase, offer right sacrifices, refers to worship that is acceptable to God. It is This is getting into our hearts now. It's talking about a heart that is wholly devoted to the Lord, that loves the Lord and seeks to honor the Lord in all things. It is not just going through the outward motions. 
That you can show up to church every week faithfully and still not have a heart that is devoted to the Lord. David's getting to the heart here. Offer right sacrifices. As we read in Psalm 51, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. And then Paul's plea in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is what right sacrifices. That is what true worship looks like. And when we tremble before God in reverent fear, and when we meditate on his word and evaluate our lives and circumstances in the light of his holiness and glory, and when we offer our lives as a sacrifice of worship to him, we are showing that we have put our trust in the Lord, as it says. We give ourselves over to the Lord and to his work. We don't rely on other beings and we don't rely on other resources for peace. Our trust is, is a cheerful trust, not a reluctant trust. It is constant, not temporary. It is firm, not wavering. It is obedient, not self-willed. And it is from the heart, not superficial. That's what he's calling us to here. Tremble, meditate, worship before the Lord. These are three essential keys to pursuing godly peace in every circumstance. And then we come to the fourth aspect, the fourth way that David demonstrates godly peace, his prayer, his conviction, his instruction, and now his testimony. This is the culmination of the whole psalm. This is David saying, I have done this, and now I want to tell you what I have found. Let me tell you what the results of this are. And there are three key words again here, favor, joy, and peace. Verse 6 speaks of godly favor. It says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Indeed, this world is desperately searching for gladness, for satisfaction, and for contentment. Many are asking for good, for hope, for joy, for peace and prosperity, whatever they think it is. And the first part of this verse demonstrates that. It is a question from all humanity in every age. Who will show us some good? But the second part of the verse is David's answer to that question. And simply put, it's this. God's people have it. The world seeking it, God's people have it. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. The image of light, the light of God's face, is an image that we find throughout Scripture. And it refers to God's favor resting upon his people. Think of the, the blessing of Aaron back in Numbers when he talks about that God would, that would shine his face upon us. He would lift up his countenance toward us. 
but it gets really specific when we get into the New Testament and we see how exactly God shines the light of his favor upon his people. This is where we get to the heart of finding true godly peace. The Apostle Paul uses the same imagery in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, when he says this, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That takes us right back to verse 3, right? Where we read, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The greatest expression of God's favor in the lives of his people is the gospel of Jesus Christ who died for us to save us from our sin and to save us from God's judgment, to give us peace with God, to sanctify us, to give us eternal life with him. And in the future, we are promised that that same grace will, will bring us into eternal glory, that we will physically see the light, the face of Jesus Christ. Christians have the favor of God shining down upon them through Jesus Christ. And that is the favor, that is the basis of the joy that David speaks of in verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. You see that? All the prosperity in the world cannot compete with the joy that God gives to his people in Jesus Christ. You can lose everything. Every possession, every relationship, every opportunity, and every comfort that this world has to offer. And you can still have super abundant joy because your joy comes from Christ. And he is unshakable. He will never forsake you. Christian's joy and stability in this world is not dependent on our earthly circumstances, no matter how good we can get them. In fact, our joy is often in spite of our circumstances. But it is a heavenly joy. It is an eternal joy. It is a joy that cannot be taken away. That is why we can be joyful even in this world, even in the harshest of trials. And that leads us to verse 8, where David summarizes the whole matter with peace. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Again, we go back to Psalm 3, verse 5, where David says, I lay down and slept at probably the darkest moment in his life. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Lying down, going to sleep, is the ultimate expression of peace. 
think I might even see it right back there. <laughs> it's a picture of one who has left all his troubles in the hands of someone else. In Oxford, England, on October 15, 1555, Nicholas Ridley sat in a prison cell awaiting his execution the next day. He was to be burned at the stake under the brutal reign of Bloody Mary. His crime? Being a Christian and proclaiming the gospel. As the day drew to a close, Ridley's brother offered to stay the night with him to comfort him until that dreaded execution. Ridley refused on the grounds that he had planned to get a good night's sleep. And the next day, he was tied to a stake with another Christian named Hugh Latimer. As the flames engulfed them, Latimer cried out to Ridley, be of good comfort and play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. How does one find the peace to sleep and the joy to celebrate in such an unjust and fearful moment? That peace is not found in pursuing personal vengeance or gaining some kind of earthly victory over our foes. It is not found in keeping our minds and our bodies so busy that we ignore or forget our troubles. It is found in being still and looking to Christ alone as our ultimate joy, our ultimate peace, our ultimate love. There's a polycarp in the 2nd century who said, was told, forsake your God, forsake him, give honor to the king. And he says, for 80 and some years I have served him and he has done me wrong. How can I forsake him now? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he has said, I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Let's pray. Father,